In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours because we don't just make the world's best calls we speak the language primos from the nation's capital this is the fly fishing consultant podcast with your host rob snow Just don't worry, don't you? Got my mojo working, buddy. Just don't worry, don't you? My name is Rob Snow White. Yes, that is my last name. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is episode 204. I'm going to talk about fly fishing in muddy, stained, off-colored water. This podcast is based on the last two months of guiding in the D.C. metro area. We have had an abnormal amount of precipitation, and the river is about to have its fifth flood of seven feet or more this calendar year. Now, I think we just got over one. The most recent, we had a two-inch rainstorm on a Sunday into Monday morning, and that was... Nine days ago, I was out yesterday with a client and the water, having not rained in several days, was still completely stained and off color and muddy. I still need to pay the bills, so work must go on. And that's what this episode is going to be about. First, I want to talk about some things going on with clients. I don't understand Venmo. I think that might just be my generation. It seems to be the younger clients that want to pay and tip in Venmo. So I guess I'm going to have to go figure out what that is. And if you don't know what Venmo is and you're a guide, I would suggest you look into that as well. I've been having issues all spring when fish or say a fish or school of fish like largemouth or stripers race up to a bait ball and just start attacking. And I say, throw your fly there now. And there's a delay. It's it's not happening fast enough. And it seems to happen a lot. Most of my clients, maybe because they're novice, they're not 
ready to just pick their fly up and water haul or roll cast it into another direction. But we've been having a couple lost fish due to that this spring. Clients also waving the rods all around when they're fighting a fish. It looks like they have a flare and they're trying to wave down a helicopter on the rooftop of a building. I just watched World War Z yesterday, so that's in my mind. We're losing fish because clients are waving that fly rod around fighting the fish, which is throwing the line in all directions, which in turn throws the leader in the hook. So the hook's popping out because it's just being lifted up, down, side to side, who knows. And then when they give it slack by dropping the rod, that barbless hook that we're using is just going to slide right out. So we've lost a lot of fish this year. I'm trying to get clients when I say set the hook, keep your arm still, and strip your line from your trigger finger to your hip. A couple times and that fish will be in. And they seem to just shake the rod all around as if they've got something much bigger than maybe a large mouth or a shad on the end of their line. Another issue with clients, and I've seen this for years, it's that when they're casting, they're shaking that cork like it's a maraca like they're at a at a, like a fiesta party now that rod when you're doing that you've got basically an electrical current of muscle and energy going from your elbow to your hand to the rod down the rod and that is an extension of your arm which then throws the line now think back when you made electric currents from a battery to two pieces of wire to a light bulb in school when you take away that connection between the two pieces of wire, the connectivity stops, the energy stops, and the light bulb doesn't go on. So when you bend your wrist, you're basically disconnecting that transfer of energy from your elbow into the rod, and you're not getting the proper energy out, and you get a lousy cast. If your arm and rod are straight, and this is the analogy back to the Luke Skywalker who had a lightsaber that came out of his forearm, that's how you should look holding a fly rod. On downward cast. When you have the rod properly positioned like that, that energy transfers from elbow down your forearm, hand not bending into the rod and allows you to throw the line. Once you bend that wrist, you lose that energy transfer and the cast doesn't work. So those are just some things I've been noticing with clients the last couple of weeks. So it has been raining nonstop, like I mentioned, and we've had to adapt. And I'm going to get into how to fish muddy water the techniques we're using on shore and on boat. But first, we're going to talk about fish hearing. We've dived into this a little bit with some of these words, but I'm going to take some of my biology of fishes, ichthyology notes from college and explain to you, the angler, why it's important to make adjustments when the water's off color. You can go find places and find fish even if the water stained. In this podcast, we're going to talk about an acousticolateralis, hearing, otoliths, lateral lines, neuromasts, fishing in muddy water, and the flies I've been using in muddy water. So the purpose of all this is to hear what's in the water. A fish needs to detect water displacement, sound, and vibrations. There are two independent but related sensory systems used by the fish we may or may not be targeting to detect sound. You have the inner ear system or the auditory system, and then you have the mechanosensory lateral line system, 
which is generally used to detect vibrations and water flow. They detect their prey and orient towards it, or they detect our flies in the water and move towards it. And that's the difference between using a fly designed for muddier water and a fly not designed for muddier water. Let's talk about hearing. The bodies of fish have approximately the same density as water. Sound passes right through their bodies. The fish have ear bones, also known as otoliths. That translates to ear stone, and we'll talk about those in depth later. The otoliths are bones in the inner ear, which are much denser than the water and the fish's body. Otoliths are made of calcium carbonate, and their size and shape is highly variable among species. And we'll get into their hunting, where you can imagine how a fish would hunt based on if it needs to hear left, right, up, and down in its environment. A bottom fish is going to have different sensory locations than one that sits midstream versus one on the surface. So otoliths, they move slower than the rest of the body in response to sound waves that the rest of the fish just doesn't pick up on. The difference in this motion of the fish's body and the otoliths bend or displace cilia, which are hair-like structures, on the hair cells that are located in the inner ear. This difference in movement between the sensory cells and the otolith is interpreted by the brain as sound. Sound differs by species due to the proximity of the inner ear to the swim bladder. So the difference in the length of a fish by species will have different proximities and will hear things sooner than others, can react sooner than others. In some fishes, the gas bladder, also might be known as the swim bladder, aids in hearing by transmitting vibration to the inner ear. This is how fish can hear you when you're on shore. I have a friend in Pennsylvania who has a pond full of catfish, largemouth, smallmouth, and hybrid striped bass. And he feeds them white bread. And you pull up to the parking lot and you're 75 feet away. And as soon as you close that car door, you start seeing ripples and pushes of fish going towards the dock. They're detecting this and they're reacting to it knowing that there's going to be free food. So sound differs by species due to proximity. Now we can talk about the Weberian apparatus. The Weberian apparatus is named after the German anatomist and physiologist Ernst Heinrich Weber. This apparatus is a distinctive chain of small bones characteristic of fish of the superorder Ostariophysi, which comprises about 8,000 of species, including carps, piranhas, minnows, suckers, loaches, electric eels, catfish, the milkfish, and much more. Not all the fish in this are targeted by fly anglers, but some of them are. The Weberian apparatus consists of four pairs of bones called ossicles. This allows fish to hear up to 3 kilohertz or more. The Weberian ossicles are derived from the vertebrae behind the skull. The bones then link to the swim bladder and inner ear. The bones enhance hearing by conducting changes in pressure produced by externally originating sound waves from the swim bladder to the ear. So they don't have a tympanic membrane like you and I, but they have the swim bladder, which can allow them to amplify sound. This is also how several fish make noises. When it works, a sound wave hits the swim bladder. The vibration is transferred through the Weberian apparatus to the auditory region of the inner ear, which amplifies the sound. Fish that possess this apparatus have very sensitive hearing and can hear sounds that many other fish are not capable of hearing. So one fish might get spooked. Why one 
might not. One might hear a fly land and go towards it before another species. Some of the things to think about when you're fishing. Now, the form fishes, we talk about these all the time in the shad podcasts, herring, shad, sardines, anchovies. They have a pair of elongated gas ducts ending in bullae, B-U-L-L-A-E. These extend from the swim bladder into the skull, and these come into direct contact with the inner ear. This allows American shad to detect ultrasonic frequencies up to 180 kilohertz. So just that difference of the elongation and the skull structure allows it to have much better hearing capabilities. Now, why would a filter feeding fish need that? Well, hearing and detecting things aren't always about feeding. Let's talk about that. So the otoliths, how does it work? Well, I mentioned fish do not have eardrums. They have three pairs of bones similar to other vertebrae. In us, we have the hammer, the stirrup, and the, what is the third one? Well, we have three bones in our inner ear. Those are the smallest bones in the human body, which if you're ever in a trivia contest, it's the stipe, the pedestal, and the something else. One of those may be the one I'm not remembering, but just in Latin. So where are these located in fish? They're just behind the brain. They float in a fluid-filled chamber. A large pair of bones, one on each side of the head, called sagittae, S-A-G-I-T-T-A-E, are often studied because they're larger and easier to work with. This is how they determine the age of the snakeheads in the Potomac River. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls, we speak the language. Primo's. You also have two pairs of smaller bones, the lapli, L-A-P-I-L-L-I, and the asterisci, A-S-T-E-R-I-S-C-I-I. Otoliths sense motion and direction. They detect sound vibrations and translate them into something their brains can interpret. Is that food or is it a predator after me? Flight or fight based on sound vibrations in water. There's a dense bone in a fluid-filled chamber in the head or the cranium, depending on what you call the front part of the brain chamber. The denser the otoliths have, the more inertia so they don't vibrate as fast. Chemical makeup of calcium carbonate is similar to an oyster shell. I mentioned that earlier. So you can also tell the components of the water where these live on based on the accumulations of certain molecules or elements in their bones. These work at low frequencies. And remember that we spoke with a guy, and this comes up in the next podcast with Drew, that fish can't hear those rattles that are sold for fly tires. The guy at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival is like, yeah, no, those totally are bogus. And you believe him because he's got a PhD in this. All right. The fish in muddy waters need to hear better, which is what we're doing right now. These are fish that live in complete muddy water or in complete darkness like a cave fish or something way down deep in the ocean. But the fish up here are going to have to start getting better hearing. Maybe the ones that have better hearing capabilities are going to reproduce 
because they're going to get more food and be better have better nutrition than the ones that aren't hearing in this water. And maybe after years of all this muddy new weather change in D.C., you're going to have a higher frequency hearing species of bass. Just thinking. So there's annual growth rings that also are used to age the fish. I mentioned that earlier. Each species of fish has a unique shape to its otolith. So if you really want to get quizzed in an ichthyology lab, they're going to put a couple down and you can identify them based on the species you've been studying. Marine fish have different shapes based on their diet. Don't forget, there's a different makeup of the water that they're living in, and that may affect their otoliths as well. Again, the shorter distance between inner ear and swim bladder equals better hearing. It's a shorter distance for sound to travel. Squirrel fish have the shortest distance between their swim bladder and inner ear. Just a fact I found. Let's talk about that literal let's talk about that lateral line. This is what is referred to as a fish's distant touch. It can be referred to as seismosensory of a fish. It has an important role in schooling behavior, predation, and orientation. So maybe those shad are using their sound detection to school with other fish. And I've mentioned this before in a shad podcast I'll mention a little later. The location of the line depends on where the fish lives and how it feeds. And you can see these really easily on something like a snook. You can see them on a striped bass, bluegill, largemouth quite easily. Other fish, it's hard to detect. It might look like a microscopic zipper down their side. And they're going to have it based on how and where they feed. Some species have a single canal along the lateral trunk, while others have multiple canals or even no canals along the trunk. So it might be visible in one, like I said, and not invisible in others. The lateral line segments themselves on the head are more elaborate, and they enable surface feeding to detect and locate the source of the surface food based on the waves produced by the prey. So things that swim near the surface, things that eat frogs, mice, cicadas, birds, things that fall in the water, and fish that live close to the surface are going to have a more elaborate structural system in their cranium because they need to detect where they're eating. Just like the sharks have the ampullae of Lorenzini on the front of their face and not on their tail, they're going to be located where that fish is going to be hunting, which is maybe in the sand or in open water, but it's going to be where the shark is pointing and is going to detect their food from. The lateral line segments are important for making accurate adjustments in position in the fish that's school tightly. Think about those fish in Finding Nemo when they all would move together. And the particle motion or the sound pressure waves passing through water, this prevents fish in schools from colliding. So they have to hear and detect where they are so they don't bump into each other. Think about when one car breaks on a highway, it causes every car behind it to slow down. And when every car slows down, the cars behind them slow down and you get a traffic jam. It's inefficient for fish to bump into each other. It allows schooling fish to move slower, which allows them to better process oxygen and draft behind each other, which allows fewer calories to be burned. It also facilitates respiration by allowing a more efficient oxygen processing to go through the lungs. They can pace themselves in a school, whereas if they're single, they're going to burn more calories. And particle motion is a sound pressure wave passing through the air or water. The particle motion in water allows the detection of movement, vibration, and pressure gradients. So these are all things that you might need to know based on being a hunter for fish. 
And when I talked about fishing spring creeks, I said, you stand 10 to 15 feet back and throw your line to land on the ground and the leader to land in the water because those fish can detect you on those undercut banks. Your movements, your vibrations, the sound you make in a boat. My boss at the Ocean Reef Club was such a numbnuts that he would bring that glass coffee pot and it would be sliding around on the boat and he would stumble and fall and cough and snort and he would urinate in the water. He was a disgusting man. But all these things he did would negatively affect the fishing. That's one of the reasons I blame him for me never catching a bonefish. It was just, he made so much freaking noise on the boat. So these fish are going to respond to displacement caused by motion and transmit these signals into electrical impulses. You're going to hear a story about Drew Chacon and Snook in the next episode and pressure gradients caused by motion and what happens when a boat goes through a canal versus a paddleboard in a canal in Florida. It's pretty cool stuff how you can tie these podcasts into each other. And this also allows fish to orient themselves towards the source before proceeding to attack or flee. So if you're popping something along in the water, you might not see it because the water's muddy. That fish might make a U-turn and follow the sound until it gets close enough to maybe see it or just detect that it's there. It can judge the distance. Think about why cats have whiskers so they can pass through a certain distance is what I've been told. I'm not a cat person, so I don't keep my facts up to date with cats. But that's the rumor. The cats can't go in anything more narrow than their whiskers, which is cruel. Why a kid I grew up with used to cut his cat whiskers off to experiment. Those are the ones that turn out to be the people as grownups you got to worry about. It's another podcast. So enough of why they're doing it. Let's talk about the actual organ called a neuromast. It's, uh, it's basically a, a cell ball. It's a mechanoreceptor, which allows the sensing of mechanical changes in water. The cells have... 100 cell per neuromass. So it's a mass that's made up of 100 smaller. Think of a 100-pack of Natty Light you can get up in Georgetown in D.C. It's a big case of a bundle of cells. Now, the cilia from these neuromass stick up into the gelatinous sail-like structure called a cupula. You can imagine what that sail is shaped like. Moving water bends the cupula, so the sensory of your cilia, you've got them... I think on almost every part of your body except your teeth and your eyes. Cilia are what move. Paramecium, the smaller they are, the sensory receptive area you can have. So you get more surface area by decreasing and making lots of little things. Now, the moving water is going to bend them, and that's going to send a signal to the neurons, which takes signals to the lateral line region of the brain. The lateral line hair cells are stimulated because of the net difference between the motion of the fish and the surrounding water particles. Sensory organs containing the hair cells are organized into small groups, and there are two main types of these. There is the superficial or surface neuromast, which is located externally on the surface of the body. These are in direct contact with the environment. They provide fish with information about general water motion and assist the fish in swimming with or against currents which is why I'm exhausted because I rode for about seven hours against currents yesterday. Like I said, that water, nine days after a rain, we've had one thunderstorm between them, but that two-inch rainstorm has still stained the river this many days later. The second variety of neuromasts are canal neuromasts. These are located along the lateral lines in subdermal fluid-filled canals. Each neuromast consists of receptive hair cells with tips covered by flexible and jelly-like cupula. 
Canal organs are primarily involved in detection of low frequency, below 100 hertz, hydrodynamic movements of other fish. You can replace other fish with artificial flies or lures. So where are these neuromasts? There are three main branches of the lateral line canal in the head of most fishes. The first one passes forward and above the eye. The second is forward and immediately below the eye. And the third is downwards and over the lower jaw. So you've got a whole bunch in the front to detect the pressure waves and sound of things coming your way if you're a fish. This is all visible as faint lines of scales or pores that run lengthwise down each side from the gill covers to the base of the tail. Like I said, you might see that little line of zippers. Fishes can use the lateral line system to detect acoustic signals at short range over a distance of one to two body lengths. So think about when you're sight casting in clear water, how far do you want to throw it from that bass sitting under that tree? Maybe one to two body lengths. You don't want it too far, they're not going to hear it and not want to burn the calories to go get it. So think about that distance where you're not going to spook them, you just want it just right. They also detect sound at low frequencies lower than 160 to 200, or I should say, the second lateral line system is to detect sound at low frequencies lower than 160 to 200 hertz. Now let's talk about now your techniques and methods and how you got to change things up. I've suggested to some of my clients that this water is pretty bad and we might not get fish. But you know what? These clients have insisted we've gone out. We've had the best largemouth bass fishing in the history of my guiding career as to date. I don't know if it's because the stained water or there's bigger fish this year. But these last six to seven weeks, we've caught the biggest bass I've ever seen my clients pull out of lakes, rivers, and tidal estuaries. So right now, we can't see what's in the water. When I'm rowing or when we're wading, there are structures, there are logs and stumps and rocks. There are hazards, things you might bump into. You don't know where to step. You might not know where to row. Sometimes we just hit something with the boat that washed down. There's so much junk after these storms of logs and barrels and dock pieces. It's crazy. My neighbor's friend found an aluminum canoe the other day that had washed down from somewhere. There's a lot of stuff you got to watch out for. And I'm rowing and bumping things constantly. Which means I can't get the stealthy approach I want. If we're trying to be stealthy through this water. Now thicker water is most likely going to have more mud particles. And thus, the sound frequencies aren't going to be able to travel as fast. But they're still going to hear us, and I still want a stealthy approach. If you want to wear your loud, ugly, obnoxious clothes on the boat, I usually don't care. I don't think it scares fish. But these are the days you can get away with wearing your Aloha shirt. Now, walking. I mentioned earlier about my friend's pond in Pennsylvania. We're walking along tidal creeks downstream from water treatment plants. There's a couple around here. And the fish at high tide are stacked up with their tails against the shore. It's a 90-degree wall that's man-made. These fish, you will see them from 20 feet downstream spook. And we're behind shoulder-height grasses, and we're looking through those where the fish are. And we can see downstream, 
as we're walking and stopping and we're spooking fish that don't even see us. They're hearing our vibrations. So... In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. We may think we're getting away with the water being more muddy right now, and they can't hear us, but they're still spooking. We're seeing pushes and V-wakes and splashes. We're also spooking fish in the water that we don't see. We'll come up to something, and just all of a sudden, there's a big swirl of milk chocolate-colored water, a big tornado of it, and then bubbles and mud as the fish or fishes swim past us to get away from the boat my clients aren't even seeing these fish normally they'll say oh look there's a gar there's a catfish or slow down there's a huge bass or what is that that's a snakehead that's not happening right now we're not seeing things until we're right on top of them and it's the client maybe shifting their feet or me pushing with the oar that these fish are detecting us so what we're doing is fishing flies on thicker leaders the thicker leader is just going to allow us to fish in heavier cover where we're fishing at high tide. When the river is up at seven or eight feet at Little Falls, the tidal creeks and estuaries are still going to go up three to four feet. And we are floating over the lily pads that are stretched to their limit. And flies are going to get hung up in them. There's a, they're crenate or heart-shaped. And that little V on the top of the heart, you can have a weedless fly, but the leader is still going to get caught in that and get stuck. And certain lilies like spatter dock, you can't rip. There are lilies like spatter dock where you cannot rip a fly through it. It is too fibrous. So heavier leader to pull things through. Plus, nothing here is leader shy, but we can get away with using a heavier tippet. And also, we don't know what we're fishing. We're fishing structure where fish should be parallel to the shore and underneath and along structure. Or parallel to the shore is where they've been at four mile. Perpendicular is mostly what we think they're doing on the tributaries, but again, we can't see. You don't know if there's going to be a 30-pound catfish down there, so we're always being cautious with a heavier leader. So right now, we're doing about 12-pound tippet. Normally, it's 10, 8-pound of the dropper. The fish, if you hook them in the heavy stuff, you're going to have to pull them out of there. So that's a whole another fiasco. Plus, there's floating weeds and all sorts of flotsam on top of the water. It's a lot of things that that leader is going to go through. And you can also get away with more false casting when the fish can't see your fly going overhead. We've been out during absolute pouring rain and low visibility where even my yellow costas are still too dark. And the clients are not complaining. I'm wearing waders, fingertipless, 
rowing gloves, long sleeve shirt, a hoodie, and a kayaking dry top, my coca tat. And I was cold at three hours in, and they're wearing shorts and slickers. Some of them were from the north, but we got one fish that day, and I'll tell you the fly in a moment. But that was the, the biggest bass we caught of the year until six days later. We'll get into that. So the, the flies are going to be upgraded based on just my observations of how we're going to change our fishing and the science above that fish are going to detect things where they can feel it. So they're going to feel the fly in the water or feel the fly on top of the water. And when there's zero visibility, that's their only method of hunting and eating. So before I said, if only the ones with really good sensory systems are feeding, those are going to be the only ones to reproduce, and eventually you get better hearing fish. Now, if it continues to be muddy, nonstop here, maybe our fish will change in uh, specific populations. So we're fishing stuff with weed guards, 30 pound on both sides, sinking flies and dry flies. Tying flies that are going to splat more, that are going to have a sound when they hit the water and send pulses and vibrations throughout. I want things that are going to push water when they go through the top and through the water. So that means it's going to have bulkier bodies. It's going to have more uh, rubbery latex legs on it. It's going to have ultra suede and zonkers. Thick, dense materials and materials that are going to produce more pushes and pulses in the water things that vibrate more so we're going to be throwing articulated flies things that have uh, a wider tail on them we're not going so much for flash we're going for bulk and motion of the fly so what have we been fishing snallygasters that is my braided bass worm with a ultra suede tail and a skirt synthetic clousers we've been fishing my spot for gar and that is where we picked up the largest bass until we caught one on a purple snallygaster under an oak tree that shocked me how big it was. So the snallygaster has been awesome and purple. We're also maybe doing the dark fly, dark water, light fly, light water, but that doesn't always work out. Synthetic clousers have been yellow and white or blue and white, and we're catching very large largemouth, maybe five or six very big largemouth on those. My scorpion bug, I've never really fished it weedless, but we're doing that now. I'm fishing it in a, sort of a lime, shiny, chartreuse green, and that has rubber legs. It's made out of foam. It has a thick tail. It pulses the water. We're fishing my splat rat, my foam mouse. I've updated over last winter Pat Eller's Reaper to have zonker tails, putting weed guards on those and the mouse, and a curly tail Potomac peanut, which is... A beefed up version of Russ Madden's fly with a curly ultra suede tail and just more bulk to it. So the Snallygaster, we're casting that out and it's a lot of vertical jigging. I think it was Kelly Gallup who wrote the article a couple years ago about vertical jigging and articulated flies. And you want them to go up and drop. So we're not only making them go up and drop to move water, we're shaking them a little left and a little right with just little pops of the rod. And that's going to make this fly snake through the water. It's going to make those rubber legs undulate, and that tail's going to swish back and forth. We're keeping the tails on them rather brightly colored, white with some orange or white and purple. The only thing we can see of that fly in the water is the white. And we had a client nearly get his rod ripped out of his arm 
two weeks ago. That was the day they caught the huge bass on the Snallygaster and the Clouser. And it was nuts that day. But we were using a, a big fly in murky water, and the guy wasn't paying attention, and it all gave us a shock. The synthetic Clouser, it's a bulky synthetic fly made of, I think, near hair. And it's just bulkier and more dense in the water than it is uh, synthetic clouds are made out of super hair or one made out of bucktail. And we're fishing them for gar, but other things are eating them. We've caught snakeheads on them before. We've been doing fantastic with largemouth on these flies. And I think it's because they can pick up that snapping motion of when it you strip and drop, strip and drop, strip and drop. The scorpion bug has been fantastic. The method for fishing this normally, and especially in muddy water, is cast is to cast. It's going to splat. Let it sit there and vibrate. I want little ripples like the water glass in Jurassic Park. I want those to send out and I want the rubber legs to just be surfing on that. And then we're going to strip, strip and we're going to pause and it's going to stop and vibrate in the water, rubber legs. And then before it stops moving, we're going to strip, strip again and repeat that until we think we're done with where the fish is going to come out of. And we had a bunch of hits on those yesterday up in the wild rice and the pickerel weed at high tide just could not get any, anything to set the hook on it forgetting what we use later on but that fly got a lot of bass to the surface doesn't matter what color it's in because again the fish is looking up through muddy water at the sky they're only going to see a shadow of it below my foam mouse is called splat rat for a reason it splats the water and when you strip it, it shakes back and forth. And I want you to shake the rod tip back and forth like you're scrambling eggs. And that's going to make it, with the non-slip mono loop, look like it's kicking. And it sends out a huge wake for a small fly. Haven't gotten any bites on that, but we're still fishing it. It's always fun to say, do we think they think it's a mouse? Probably not. They're just seeing a vibration and something going across the water. It could be a baby duck. It could be a turtle. It could be a frog. I don't think they look and say, oh, that's a mouse. I'm going to eat that. I think it's more of they're detecting it or they're seeing something and it's an attractor pattern. Now, I've been tying those reapers with the bunny tails and we've been doing really well with the fire tiger color. I don't know if it's because I just decided to fish that, but we got a nice large mouth, surprisingly nice yesterday, right on a drop off where a current went over a rock ledge. And there was a little break in the current where a fish could sit and wait and ambush. And you think that's coming down? Client threw that in there with a purple worm dropper, a rubbery worm. I'm thinking about calling them sticky worms because in this heat, they stick to every tree and rock and concrete structure in the water. He stripped it twice, and I'm si- they're on size two hooks. They're a little tiny, but they're beefy and bulky, and they're pushy. And we caught that largemouth right where it should have been. We got a couple other bites on it, and then I think we switched to the gutless frog yesterday. So I don't even have that on my list. How about that? Let's add gutless frogs. We've been fishing that in the lily pads. We got a nice bass yesterday, and right when a front came through and it dropped 20 degrees, and the water got darker because it was muddy and overcast. We also were able to see the fatal fire crash on the Wilson Bridge that shut down the Beltway for people for four hours yesterday. We saw this huge plume of black smoke in the distance. 
The gutless frog, it curves up right at the front, at least my style does, and it pushes water, and you strip, strip, pause, strip, strip, pause, strip, strip, pause. And we had a bass, you could see the push, you know, like a redfish going after, you know, everyone likes the guard side gurgler. That fly just doesn't do it for me. I don't like the mix of artificial and natural and the shape of it. But how you would see a redfish, and there's always those movies on the film tour of the redfish chasing topwater poppers. The bass chased it like that and finally ate it about seven feet off the bank. It was awesome to watch. So we're fishing that in orange so we can see it. Orange with green legs. Last but not least is the curly tail Potomac peanut. It's tied with a thick wrapping of purple or I'm doing fuchsia crystal flash anneal with a large colored ultra suede tail, lots of rubber legs, and just bulky flash and rubber legs built into it with a double hackle collar of two colors on each shoulder, I would say, of the fly, and large dumbbell eyes. Strip, it comes up. It goes down. You strip, pause, it goes up and goes down. And it goes in this kicking motion. And my neighbor again, Jim, is like, is he breakdancing in his room again because of the motion? And we were out the day after, the morning of or after, we got that two-inch rainstorm. It was a Monday morning. High tide was around 9 o'clock. We fished from 9 to 1. You couldn't see a darn thing. Even the outflow at 4 Mile was completely, completely murky. But we were fishing these large flies with a spinning tail on a heavy leader, and the client was using his seven weight, and he's a great caster. So he's throwing 60 to 70 feet downstream, just leaning over the shore, and strip, 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 pop, pop, strip, strip, pop, 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 strip, strip, strip. And all of a sudden, his line would go tight, and the rod would bend, and he'd set the hook. We didn't know what they were half the time. We landed mostly largemouth, and we got a nice striper way up top, but you could not see, the the water had zero visibility, and it was a large, bulky, colorful fly that made the difference of all the other flies we had tried. We tried top water for a bit, nothing on there, I think we tried the worm, but it was that curly-tailed one on that day that the fish wanted, and we landed about three or four nice largemouth and a nice striper, first striper up there this spring season. So that's how I've adapted with my clients to fish this awful water and this changing climate we seem to have here, which is messy with my business. Cancel tomorrow, postpone, well, postpone tomorrow, postpone Saturday, probably postpone the guy that wants to fish Sunday. I said, it's nothing's going to be fishable right now. Even the inland lakes and ponds are going to get a deluge from all the street runoff and the creeks that feed them. So this is how we're adapting. This is why we're adapting it. This is some thought for you for how you can take the science and how I'm adapting my flies and use what you have bought from stores, what you're going to buy from stores, or what you plan on tying. So I hope this was interesting. If not, the next podcast with Drew Chacone, and I call him Chacone at the beginning, so I mistake that. The next one's going to be pretty interesting. You'll hear me taking notes on my pad of paper here. So that's it for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, episode 204. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
Mondays. Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.